I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. The Global Women's Summit 2022 was an extraordinary gathering of female leaders from around the world. Hillary Clinton was there. So were Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and Iranian journalist Masi Alinejad. But I got to sit down with the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, our third interview since she assumed the post last year. In this conversation, first recorded at the Global Women's Summit on November 15th, we talked foreign affairs. But I also got Ambassador Thomas Greenfield to talk about her role as a diplomat on one of the world's biggest stages and what it's like being a black woman in a world dominated by white men. You know, I never walk into a room uh, feeling as if I'm in the room as a black woman. Uh, When I walk into the Security Council, I'm the U.S. Permanent Representative to the Security Council. Madam Ambassador, you've spent more than 30 years as a career diplomat. These diplomatic circles historically have been overwhelmingly led by white men. What has your experience been like, not only as one of America's top diplomats, but as a woman of color advancing the basic rights of other women around the world? You know, I never walk into a room uh, feeling as if I'm in the room as a black woman. Uh, When I walk into the Security Council, I'm the U.S. Permanent Representative to the Security Council. And that's what I tell young women when I meet them. Don't wear other people's problems on your shoulders. You know what you're there to do and do what you are there to do. But we still have an issue in in our foreign service. Um, We're still not diverse enough. Diversity is our strength. It is important that the face of America is reflected in our diplomatic corps. And I still go to embassies overseas and sit in uh, a country team meeting and see Uh, overwhelming white males. How does that go over? You know, sometimes I actually will comment. I'll say there's something um, uncomfortable about this room. Uh, uh, There's something that's weird about this room and people will all look around and they never (laughs) come up with what it is. Like, oh, it's really cold. <laughs> and usually it is. Or, uh, but other times people will, will notice. I, I was at one mission and we were literally in a room with 50 people and there were only two women, me and the DCM, hmm. the deputy chief of mission. You grew up in the segregated South. Um, briefly, how has, how has that experience informed your work as a diplomat and particularly as the top American diplomat at the UN? You know, I am proud of uh, how I grew up because I think it shows where America has come, how far we've come. And I think it is a sign to the world uh, that while America continues to address these issues, we are addressing them. The fact that I made it to where I made it when I look at where I came, I think is a message to the world. And it's also a message to other young people who come from diverse and underprivileged backgrounds 
that where they come from does not necessarily have to define where they're going. And so when you're traveling around the world, do, do you hear? Do you, do you hear from or do people in other countries come up to you and talk to you about know, being a symbol to them? They do. And it's very, you know, it, I feel uncomfortable being a symbol. Um, but also it's a responsibility uh, and it's a privilege and it's a bit of a burden uh, being a privilege because you always have to be on your P's and Q's uh, because the expectations of you are so high. Uh, so I always tell young people and particularly young people from underprivileged backgrounds that they have a burden. They have a burden to sometimes overperform. Uh, they can never underperform. Uh, they can never have a bad day. Uh, so that burden can sometimes be overpowering. Uh, but they need to know that because they'll, their failure, when I, when I went to Louisiana State University, uh, no one thought I was going to succeed. And they were all sitting back, even people in my own community, waiting for me to fail. And so I had that burden. I couldn't have a bad day. I wanted to hang out with my friends and party and get drunk and do all those things <laughs> that, that young people do in college. But I never, ever felt that I could do that. Mm -hmm. The burden of perfection is what it's I wrote. It's the down. burden of, of perfection. Um, you've noted that women are becoming more political around the world, from Iran and Afghanistan to the United States, as we've just seen in the midterm elections. What do you attribute that to? Well, I, it's long overdue. And women have been pushing against those, uh, I would say, nail-shut doors for a long time, and they just burst through. And they're showing the power that 50% of our populations across the globe, we're showing the power that, uh, that we have. And that's important. <laughs> I didn't want to, you gave me the look of yeah. thinking that I was going to stop you, but yeah. I wasn't. Keep, keep going if you want to keep no, going. I'm good. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, we have seen incredible protests of, of overwhelmingly uh, women, young women, in Iran. Um, what do you, I, I'm trying to remember the, the story, the other story, big story that was happening today that uh, one of the protesters was sent to, if I'm remembering correctly, sentenced to death and now there's concern that the same thing will happen to the thousands of others who have been detained or arrested in Iran. What is the, the US's message to those young people in Iran who are continuing to demonstrate weeks after the initial incident? You know, First, let me just say, this person being sentenced to death is one more of over 100 people who weren't sentenced but were killed in, in the streets. So uh, the death sentence just shows the extent to which this uh, regime will go to stop people from demanding their rights. And what we say to them is, we stand with you. We understand. 
But we also have to understand that these women, these young people, are being extraordinarily courageous because they, they could be sentenced to death. They could be killed in the streets. We've seen the injuries that many of them have, have suffered. And uh, we need to send a message to them to let them know that we, we're, we're there for them. We hear them. Uh, that their voices are not, while the, the police on the street are trying to stop us from hearing their voices, we actually are hearing it. We hear what they're doing, we see what is happening, and we support them. And is that one of the reasons why the United States is trying to remove Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women? How'd they get there in the first place? Uh, that's, that's a good question. And, and they don't deserve to be there because the Commission on the Status of Women is about women's rights. It's about human rights for women. It's about promoting and protecting women. And inside this organization is basically a, a, a country that is actually fighting women and trying to block women from achieving their human rights. So uh, they don't deserve to be on, 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 uh, on the council. And we have to work with our allies, with our friends, with the supporters of uh, Iran to remove them. And still speaking of Iran, is there any path forward, for, do you think, for a nuclear deal with Iran while the regime continues its uh, persecution of women? Uh, right now, there are two things on our minds related to Iran. There are attacks on women in the street who are, are peacefully protesting, uh, attacks on them, and Iran providing missiles and drones to the Russians to kill civilians in Ukraine. So that's what we're focused on right now. I want to come back to Ukraine in the six minutes and 42 seconds we have left, but I've got to ask you about women in Afghanistan. Um, they've also been protesting the strict measures put in place by the Taliban, forced to stay at home, not able to work or go to school. Um, what's your response to Afghan women who say, quote, the international community left us behind after the withdrawal of the United States? We are there for them. The international community still is backing and supporting the women of Afghanistan. Uh, the UN is still on the ground. We're working to provide programs to support those women who are there. The secretary just approved a new visa category for uh, uh, Afghan uh, women as well, so for those who are able to get out. But I've also heard from some Afghan Afghan activists, they want to stay there. Everybody can't leave, and they want to stay to support getting education re resumed for, for women. So they're still protesting. These women had 20 years of freedom, 20 years in which they were able to uh, be educated, and to have that just stop. Uh, is, is almost a, a shock to, to their system. So they're still protesting, and we're doing everything we can to hold this government accountable, to keep the pressure on, uh, so that they can back away from this horrific policy of blocking women from being educated. 
All right, um, back to the Chinese and, and, and Russia. President Biden had what seemed to be a successful meeting with President Xi uh, overseas yesterday. And I'm wondering, the, the unique relationship that Beijing has with Moscow, President Xi has with, with uh, Vladimir Putin, do you believe President Xi has the power to get Putin to change course in Iran? Uh, more to the point, is it a power he wants to use? President Xi. You know, I, we've been clear to uh, the Chinese that they need to use uh, their power. They need to uh, use their special relationship uh, with President Putin to put pressure on Putin to do the right thing. Because if they don't uh, get him to do the right thing and he continues to make the mistakes that he's making, including his threats to use a nuclear weapon, then China has to also uh, be held accountable for that if they don't do everything possible to stop it. You were just in the region. You were just in Ukraine and you met President Volodymyr Zelensky. I did. Your impressions of him, was that your first time meeting him? Uh, it was my first time meeting him. I was uh, uh, wowed by him. I'd seen him on, on, uh, in, in virtual uh, meetings. He was confident. He was resolute. He was strong. Um, and you could tell that he was frustrated. Uh, but he was absolutely resolved to continue to fight Russia, to get Russia to remove their troops from uh, Ukraine. And I was uh, really uh, excited to see that he actually uh, was in Kherson, uh, welcoming uh, troops into that area and meeting with people. He's not locking himself up behind some bunker. Uh, uh, sending out messages. He goes out and he talks to his, his people. He's been extraordinary. And I think the Ukrainians realized that they had the right president at the right time uh, to lead during this war. In the time that we have left, let's talk about Brittany Griner, the WNBA star. Um, she's been detained in Russia since February. She was just um, I think she still is being moved to a penal colony um, somewhere in Russia, notorious for abusive treatment. Before the president left for the G20, he expressed hope that the Russians would be more willing to negotiate now that the midterm elections uh, have happened. Has there been any movement since then um, on the deal or the offer that was made by the United States to the Russians in terms of getting Brittany Griner home? Well, let me just say that we are doing everything in our power, and the president is doing everything in his power to bring Brittany home to her family. Uh, so we have engaged on that issue uh, with the Russians. We've offered them uh, a way out of this mess that they created. Uh, to allow Brittany uh, to return to her family. Uh, the news that she was being moved to a penal colony was uh, really uh, depressing. Uh, we know what that means, and that has given us even more resolve to work to get her released. Um, in the minute that we have left, just a closing thought from you. Uh, what have you learned from your current role about the power and the limits 
of diplomacy in one minute and three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> what I've learned is that even with limitations, diplomacy is the best path that we have. And we have to continue to pursue a diplomatic path to achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve. And we've had some successes. I mean, we actually got 143 member states in the Security Council to condemn Russia's annexations of uh, Ukrainian territory. Unheard of, we've raised the number from 141 uh, who condemn the invasion to 143 condemning the annexation. So diplomacy has some positive effects and we're seeing that in New York. I'm gonna squeeze in one more question because <laughs> there, there is, I believe the president floated the, the proposal of expanding the Security Council and maybe having some floating seats. But is that even possible when Russia and China have a veto power? It, it is possible because I think they even understand that we are at a time when Security Council reform is needed. We cannot continue to leave out the global south from a seat at the table. And we're strongly supporting this. We're engaging with our colleagues on this, and we're hoping that we will make some changes over the coming uh, years. Thank you for the overtime there, <laughs> Madam Ambassador. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Good. Thank you very much for coming to the Washington Post. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.